as you wear your historian hat, can you tell us why today's Mormons would want to read writing that portrays the Utah pioneers as being so dastardly? I find them interesting to read because it allows me to enter directly into the same experiences Americans of 100, 150 years ago went through. We dress up in pioneer clothes, we go on handcart treks and so on. When we're just play acting, we're not really able to get into the real experience of someone who went through those things. But when you read the actual book that was read by someone 120 years ago, you are actually reliving the experience of people whose idea of Mormonism was being formed, or the experience of Mormons who read these things with the same sort of shock that you hear of things today. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, and welcome to the LDS Perspectives podcast. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Artis Partial to talk about the Mormon image in literature. Artis is a historian, author, and freelance researcher specializing in Mormon history. She's the co-editor of the Mormon Image in Literature series. She maintains the popular Mormon history blog, Keep a Pigeon In. How did you get into archival history? I was a legal secretary forever and got to the point where I just couldn't do that anymore. People don't go to a lawyer when they're having a good day. And while I was looking around for something else that I could do, I discovered the archives, doing some family history work there, and just began doing work for other people because I had access to these things in downtown Salt Lake when they were out of town. And so it was really kind of an accident, but I found out that I had quite a knack for it, and so it's just grown from there. And when did you start Keep a Pitching In? That's a little over 10 years ago. 6,500 posts so far. That's great. <laughs> that is super. Not all by you, fortunately, uh, right? all, all but about 150 by me. Oh, wow. That's great. To those who are not familiar with the Mormon Image in Literature series, can you explain its purpose and scope? Sure. This started because of Mike Austin's interest in literature. He was aware of some early novels that featured Mormons as characters from the 1850s and 60s, but he wasn't actually able to locate these books. One of them, The Mormoness, was the earliest one that he could identify, but it existed nowhere. I found a copy of it at the Church History Library and transcribed it for him, and that's the beginning of the series. He wanted to make these early works available to people so they didn't have to hunt like he did. And I began to be interested in how they affected us in history. So we have the team of his literature and my history to look at how Mormons have been perceived in fiction for all of these years. These books were written in English. Why would you need to transcribe them? They're impossible to find. Many of them were never printed in large editions, and so over the years they've become lost. And others, like the Dime Novel series, are printed on uh, such 
fragile paper, just like uh, the old telephone books were printed on, and they have just crumbled away. They don't exist anywhere. Mike has identified dozens of stories that evidently had Mormon characters, but the physical item has not, not survived. So we're taking those that have survived, those that we can find, and publishing them again to make them available to readers who have an interest today. Some of the pages crumble when you try to turn them, yes. or they're missing, so you have to kind of fill in the words. Also, I noticed the print type was extremely small. Yes. You have, must have very good vision. <laughs> Some of these books, the dime novels again especially, are printed in microscopic print because they were published cheaply. They were sold for a dime or a quarter in, say, 1900. And one of the ways they kept the cost down was put as many words as possible on a page by using tiny type. That is an advantage of technology, though. Mostly I work from scans that have been made, and so, of course, those are easier to enlarge. We have published three volumes so far. We have an unlimited number of possibilities in the future. There are books of every genre that you could imagine, except perhaps science fiction, where Mormons have appeared as characters in the earliest days of these sorts of books. So we have uh, some mysteries. We have romances. We have westerns. Much of what we've done so far has a, are a type of western. We're open to almost anything that shows Mormon characters, whether they're pro-Mormon novels or anti-Mormon novels. We just want to look at how Mormons have been perceived through the way they have been depicted in novels. Because in many cases, people's first impressions, their introduction to Mormonism has been through novels. When they hear the name Mormon, what appears in their minds is what they have seen in these books and have read over the years. So it doesn't matter to us whether they're pro or anti. That's how we were perceived. Now, your most recent release was a collection of dime novels. Mm -hmm. In the introduction to the book, Dime Novel Mormons, it ends with this bold statement. And in various ways, the key Mormon tropes of these novels have been found in popular literature ever since. Understanding how these stereotypes were created and first employed can help us understand many things about the way that Mormonism has always functioned in American culture. How would you say Mormonism has functioned in American culture? Well, we appear everywhere. We appear in movies and TV shows and popular novels. And some of the way that we appear in those media actually go back to the beginning of the novels. For example, Mormons are often portrayed as secretive one way or another. That can be portrayed as sinister, or it might be just a reticence to talk about uh, oneself. In real life, we recognize that Mormons are anything but secret. We beg people to listen to us. But the way we're depicted in the novels, we have things to hide. And you are aware of that in just this discourse about Mormonism today. There's this idea that we present one face to the world, but when we're among ourselves, we really have these secret things that we talk about. That's something that goes back to the beginning of our appearance in, in fiction. We have often been portrayed as the bad guys in Western stories, and we still are. If you stop to think of how many times you have heard about Mountain Meadows Massacre, the things that are talked about are not the straight history of that event, 
but they're the tropes that have grown up in the popular imagination based on old movies, old novels, and so on. Every time we're mentioned, there's this baggage from the past that we may or may not have created ourselves, but it's there. When we're talking about dime novels, what period of time were these popular? And was it like 1860s to 1910s? They began in, they began in about 1870. Uh, they were very popular up through the turn of the century and slightly beyond. They're called dime novels because they literally cost the dime in many cases. They were cheap and they were sensational. The United States was undergoing an educational revolution in the mid-19th century, and many people learned to read for the first time. They needed things to read. They had extra cash to spend, and they're not going to pick up Shakespeare as their first reading material. So these novels were created to take advantage of the hungers that people had to read something, and they were sensational in order to draw your eyes and your dimes to what I'm selling and not what someone else is selling. That remained true up through the early 1900s. So the dime novels lasted 30, 40 years, virtually unchanged. Sometimes the details would be upgraded. You have fewer stagecoaches and more automobiles by the end, but the stories themselves are virtually identical. If you were to describe the typical Mormon-themed dime novel, what would it include? Well, it would probably include a Mormon that people didn't realize was a Mormon because he would present himself as very polished, very civil, very educated, but he was really a Danite, don't you know? He was back east. He was looking for young girls to seduce and carry off to his harem in the West. So there's the bad guy Mormon. There's the innocent young maiden who has no idea what she's getting into when she receives the attention of this terrible, terrible Mormon missionary. And then there's always the red-blooded American hero who comes to the rescue. The girl has been carried off across the plains, and she's about to be married off to some ancient Mormon polygamist, and this stalwart young American rides in at the last minute and saves her and hopefully punishes the Mormons while he's at it, but in any case, they ride off into the sunset together. Those elements seem to be essential, no matter what the setting is, no matter what the theme, no matter what other details there might be, there are those three characters with those sinister motives always in play. It is interesting that Danites, major figures in any respect, respectable dime novel, including Mormons, were so well-known to the broad American culture of the 19th century, but they're practically unknown now. They're part of the history we've forgotten. Well, they may be forgotten within Mormon culture itself because their real existence was such a short term and they played no role like the public prints have it. But they have been fairly steady in non-Mormon, anti-Mormon literature. They fed off the news stories of the 19th century during the time when Brigham Young was supposedly responsible for every murder that ever happened between the Mississippi and the Pacific. Of course, it was the Danites who were at fault. Danites are appearing as the bad guys in news reports, which is generally the source of dime novels. And so they appear in the novels reinforcing that popular image, and the newspapers 
wanting to satisfy their audiences, incorporate Danites again into their news stories. It's a vicious circle. It uh, had such a little bit of reality during the Missouri period of our history, but somehow that got transferred to the Utah period and blown completely out of any sense of reality, and they just became the stock villains. Looking through a 21st century lens, these novels seem so melodramatic <laughs> and over-the-top. Oh, aren't they, though? <laughs> but they nevertheless were found believable by 19th century readers. How did these stereotypes affect public perception and reception of Mormon missionaries in the late 19th century? They couldn't help but have an effect, because if the only thing that you've ever heard about Mormons is from the novels or from the newspapers, which might as well have been novels, that's what you have in your mind when you hear a knock at your door and you answer it, and there are a pair of obviously Mormon missionaries probably in their bowler hats and carrying their grips and umbrellas. You see them, but you don't see them. What you see is this picture that you have formed in your mind of these people who are going to look so pleasant on the outside, but they're just scheming to carry away the farmer's daughter. So even no matter how well a missionary portrayed himself, that fed into the stereotype because we've been warned that they will behave themselves in public. That has to have been in the minds of mothers who were sending their sons off on missions. It had to have been the experience of virtually every missionary who spoke to someone either at the door or in a, a street meeting. Fighting that perception and culture is something we still deal with, especially, I think, in the last 15, 20 years, where fundamentalist polygamy and mainstream have kind of conflated in the public perception. My daughter told someone she was from Utah, and, and they said, oh, are you one of those Mormons? And she said, well, yeah. And then she saw the funny look on their face, and She's like, oh, no, not the pioneer clothes and the polygamy. That's something totally different. So it's something that we deal with today as well. It is. It's the same old story. When my grandmother was a child in Alabama at the turn of the 20th century, she was asked by her schoolmates how many wives her dad had. When my grandfather was a missionary in England in 1920, he was asked to show his horns. And so it's not surprising that... People today can't tell the difference. I mean, there must be 50 flavors of Baptists, but you and I don't know the distinctions. People who confuse Mormons with other semi-related groups, they can be understood. That's something that we can excuse, I think, but it's very much part of the culture. And part of it is just educating them as well. It's okay to have that initial perception as long as, as you they're willing to it. hear some more. Right? Exactly. That's not quite what we represent. That's one angle of some of these books that we have coming out in the future that wouldn't be evident by the books that we've published so far. We have some novels that were written by Mormons with the express purpose of saying, this is who we really are. There's one novel that I'm looking forward to doing this year about a woman who is converted to the church, but before she will join the church, she has to be sure that Mormons really are who they say they are. And so her whole novel is looking at the Mormon image as various people that she meets see it. From the beginning, we've had to counter these stereotypical images with try to create our own. 
Beyond portrayals of Mormons in American dime novels, literature affected the public perception of Mormons internationally. You have written about how a novel almost shut down the missionary work in England in the 20th century. This is some fascinating research you've done. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. England had been reading the same sorts of novels as were being read in the United States. But in about 1910, Winifred Graham, a very popular novelist and magazine feature writer, wrote a book about Mormons that depicted, again, one of these well-behaved, polished Mormon missionaries who tricked a young girl into attending some Mormon meetings where she was converted, and then his true colors were revealed. He was actually a many times married man, and he was there looking for new wives to ship to Utah. I mean, it's the same old story, but for some reason, this novel caught the imagination of the British people. There were many stories in the newspapers about whole shiploads of young girls being sent off to Utah. There became such an outcry by the general public and by officials of the Church of England that they called on Parliament to investigate and throw the Mormons out. There was even the possibility that British Mormons would have their civil rights curtailed. So Winston Churchill, who was the Home Secretary, took on that assignment, and he investigated Mormonism. He looked into every case of girls leaving Great Britain without their parents to see what their stories were. And eventually he concluded that there was no reason for alarm, and the investigation dropped. But that entire investigation was spurred by the image of Mormons created through the novels of Winifred Graham. As you wear your historian hat, can you tell us why today's Mormons would want to read writing that portrays the Utah pioneers as being so dastardly? Well, you really have to keep your temper under control. You have to read them for what they are and not get indignant or you won't get very far. I find them interesting to read because it allows me to enter directly into the same experiences Americans of 100, 150 years ago went through. We restore buildings, we dress up in pioneer clothes, we go on handcart treks and so on. When we're just play acting, we're not really able to get into the real experience of someone who went through those things. But when you read the actual book that was read by someone 120 years ago, and those identical words form images in your brain that have to be very, very similar to the images they formed in the brains of readers all that time ago, you are actually reliving the experience of people whose idea of Mormonism was being formed, or the experience of Mormons who read these things with the same sort of shock that you hear of things today. That is the experience. You are recreating an, an historical event in your own life in a way that we can't do with a lot of our play acting. That's what I find the most useful. It, it actually allows me to enter the world of the past. Boyd K. Packer said in a fireside address about the arts, teachers, readers in this case, would do well to learn the difference between studying some things as compared to studying about them. There is a great difference. How does this apply to the Mormon Image in Literature project? That idea is what allows me to read these novels and 
find some value in them other than just having my blood pressure raised. I'm not studying them to learn anything about my people. They really have nothing to teach me about Mormons or Mormonism or Utah. But I'm studying about the perceptions of Utahns and Mormons in the minds of other people. I think that's a valuable consideration. Some people might hesitate to pick up a book that is clearly anti-Mormon because they're not making the distinction between studying something and studying about something. You're not learning this in order to adopt it, in order to incorporate it into your daily lives, as the Sunday school line goes. You're reading it to learn about the past, about the way people see us. I think there's a lesson in these dime novels that we can apply now in our culture. At the same time these dime novels were being written and released, Mormons themselves were not releasing any similar literature in that genre, were they? They were importing into Utah the same books that were being read elsewhere. I'm not really sure what But were they writing their own counter-narratives to portray how their lives really were? I see what you mean. There was a movement in the late 19th century called home literature. The idea was that we have home industry, we're producing sugar, we're producing fabric, we're producing all the things that are needed in life. We should be producing literature at home, too. And so in the magazines, particularly the Contributor and the Young Woman's Journal, there were a number of novels written from a Mormon point of view. There's uh, Susie Young Gates writing about a couple during the Utah War, which is going to be very different than novels written at the same time about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. There is uh, B.H. Roberts, the general authority, who adapted the story of Corianton from the Book of Mormon, and it was published in the contributor. So we do have some literature. It's not great. It's the first steps in trying to produce a literature of our own. It's not widely studied anymore except as an artifact of that time. It does show that we felt a vacuum in writing that portrayed us in a way that was acceptable, that they did begin to start to fill with that home literature. I've noticed that we've started to catch up in the American Mormon culture, at least, as far as publishing our own stories. So many people have their blogs telling their stories. This is what Mormonism really is like. I was very encouraged because I ran across a friend's blog. She just started. She lives in Norway about Mormon image in Scandinavia. She says right on her homepage, You talk about the stereotypical Mormon woman. Well, I'm not the stereotypical Mormon woman. We're all different, and we're going to show you how. And it's so great with modern technology, because here's this blog, Google translated into English, so it's available to people worldwide. I would encourage, and maybe you would too, those people in the worldwide church living in these places where There is still a lot of anti-Mormon literature, but Mormons haven't caught up with their own literature to jump into the pool. What would you say about that? Just like you've done a blog, you know, someone in Ghana, if they could start something and put the good information out there and kind of curtail the bad. We've been celebrating the beginning of that in the Mormon History Association for the past few years. 
We've had a very few sessions in Spanish where people have come from local areas outside the United States to talk about the history there. Blogging and other forums on the internet certainly make it easier for isolated, isolated may be too strong a word, but small groups of, of Latter-day Saints in different places to, to make their voices heard. I think that's wonderful. You may f be familiar with the term bloggernacle as the collection of Mormon-themed blogs. One of the aggregators includes two blogs that are written in, uh, one in Portuguese and one in Spanish. They're not especially Mormon history or Mormon culture, it's just Mormon life. But that's a beginning, and, and they're successful, just as we've been hungry to see ourselves in literature. They are too. I'm old enough to remember when Saturday's Warrior was still a stage play, and when it came to our—I lived in Las Vegas when it came there— it was the most phenomenal thing, not because of the quality of the play itself particularly, but it was the first time I had ever seen people like me on stage. And I imagine it would have the same effect today in places that are not used to seeing Mormons on stage or on the screen, to have some blogs, to have some writing by people in various parts of the world. I remember that, too. We drove an hour and a half to see Saturday's Warrior in Detroit, Michigan, and there was such a hunger for that artistic portrayal of this peculiar culture we have. It almost didn't matter what was on stage as long as we were part of it. it that's exactly right. Can you tell us a little bit about the book you're currently writing, She Shall Be an Ensign, and your goals for that project? Sure. Several years ago, I did an experiment. I took the last books that were last general histories of the church that had been published in the last 30 years, looked at the indexes and counted the characters who were named in them, just those who were named, not those general groups like the apostles. And I discovered that even in the most recent histories, there were no more than 5% of the characters that were women. And many of those were mentioned only in passing when it, they would say, Brother so-and-so and his wife so-and-so served as mission presidents. I know from my work in the archives, reading every primary source I can find, things that have not yet been incorporated into histories, that women were everywhere in the church from the very beginning. And so I just thought it was time to write a history of the church where virtually every character in it was either a woman or a man viewed through the eyes of a woman. Now, it's a standard history of the church. It follows the route from New York to Ohio to Missouri and so on, and it does not pretend in any way to replace the prophets and apostles with women. But when I tell the story, instead of saying that Elder so-and-so knocked on a door and, and in this new country and made a convert, I tell it from the point of view of the woman who opened the door and accepted the gospel, establishing it in that new place. I have found women throughout the world, throughout our history, to carry the narrative. It's been really fun to realize that we have those stories available if we just look for them. They're so hard, and a lot of them have to be transcribed, and that's where your specific skill set comes in, because I've looked at that handwriting 
for hours sometimes, that one word, and just said, I really want to know what that says, and I've been able to figure it out. So you are doing such a great service. Some of these things are available online, but a lot still need to be cataloged. The kinds of materials I use, virtually none of them are available online because they're not high-demand items. They're not the sources that would obviously tell us about church history. But when you read them with the eye looking for women, you find names, you find little stories they were involved in that then allows you to research that event and and turn it into a fuller understanding of it. The real trick is noticing that a woman is participating at all. Thank you, Artis, for spending some time visiting with us. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your insight. I've enjoyed it. Give me a chance and I'll talk your ear off. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.